Hello, and welcome back to another episode of On Spec. I am your host, Ryan Barath. I am very excited for this week's episode. And for those that normally tune in, and for all of you, I thank you very much. Uh, it might sound like a bit of a greatest hits episode, but it's not. What I've done is uh, did a question and answer this past week. And remember, you can always follow along at rdsbrath on Instagram, as well as same handle on Twitter. And you can follow the show's page along at onspecwrx on Instagram as well, which I, I think I double pumped the Instagram there, but that's okay. Um, because I had some really good questions come in this week. And I do them on uh, Fridays. It's, uh, it's I get a lot. I answer pretty much every single one of them. And if not, I, I'll usually slip into the old DMs and try and get some other, kind of pull some other information from people that have reached out and maybe don't have enough space in the in the comment bar or whatever. But anyways, uh, because this is, to me, a very important topic. Because as we get to the end of the year and we did a wrap-up show last week, not, I don't want to call it a wrap-up show, but it kind of was, I guess, like a best of 2020 with uh, Johnny Wonder from the Gear Dive. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check that one out. It was a lot of fun. Um, but... Because we've kind of a lot of people are putting the clubs away, or as we're starting to see more things get released, then people are starting to think about their sets for next year, or what they maybe need to switch, or what they want to try. And you're going to hear a lot of things from OEMs talking about new equipment, and I think it's important to understand what that really means, and what certain terms mean, and what they mean for your golf game. Because those are the kind of questions I get all the time when it comes down to club fitting and new clubs specifically. And so one of the first things I want to touch on is the truths of club fitting, or in some cases, the myths of club fitting, however you would like to phrase one side of the, the equation, one side of the question, either way. And the thing that I get asked a lot from a lot of people is, does club fitting matter? Now, first off, you're talking to someone who has built a lot of their career around building golf clubs and fitting golf clubs. And when I, and again, it's one of those things where I've done it for a really long time, not necessarily professionally, but if I go back to when I was 14 and 15 years old, working in the back shop of a golf course, it became pretty apparent to like the people that I played golf with and the people that I worked for at the golf course that if you have an equipment question, go ask the kid in the back shop. He's a nerd. He'll figure it out. He'll help you out. And that meant bending golf clubs, pulling club heads, putting on new grips, all kinds of stuff that I don't think a lot of kids necessarily in that at that age group are going to be involved in or something that they're really excited to do. And for me, it's something that I've always been excited about uh, just because I've been one of those curious people. And again, this is one of those backstory parts of the show. And again, I've talked about this before, but I just want to point that out because when someone asks that question, of course, it might sound defensive, but of course I'm going to say, yes, it matters. But there is a point where I will say to some people, you know, there are other ways to spend money when it comes to your golf going, or there are other ways to come to spending money when it comes to golf and enjoying the game. Because I myself am a huge equipment nerd, as uh, I'm sure you probably figured out and as I've already mentioned, but for everyone else, there are different ways to enjoy the game of golf. And so for yourself, think about how you're going to go about playing golf, selecting the equipment that you're going to use. Maybe you've already got equipment, making sure it's going to work for you. If you have clubs that you haven't regripped in a really long period of time, but you really like them, and you know, depending on what you're looking at, it could be it, it might seem very expensive or it might seem like something where, you know what, 
I like it. I don't really have an issue. Uh, I don't seem to be losing anything against the people that I play with. And I play, you know, it's, it's called occasionally. Then probably the most important thing you could possibly invest in is getting some new grips. And it sounds simple, but these little things can really make a huge difference with your ability to just enjoy the game. Now, when it comes to, um, say, younger kids getting into the game or people as they get older, when they, you're talking about transitions, and this is really important where club fitting is, is vital because it's about enjoyment. This is not about being competitive. There are, there's a whole nother level to competitiveness when it comes to golf and equipment and, you know, basically pulling at every single little lever to try and get every single advantage when it comes to your gear and fitting it just for you. And I'm going to use an analogy in just a moment. But it's this those transition periods where it's very vital. So as someone is growing up and they are getting stronger, but they're also getting into the game, it's very important to have clubs that are lighter because they're easier to swing and they match the player's tempo and just um, biomechanics as being able to produce a solid golf swing that is also comfortable and not hard on the body. Um, and you basically take that from people going up into speed, uh, when we're talking about uh, kids growing up, and then you also have it on the other side where people may be older and they're losing speed or they're trying to keep up speed. And this is where changing equipment can be very vital as well. Now, in between there, there's a long period of time where, yes, people will improve, people will get better, and equipment tweaks can very much help someone's golf swing. Have it be that... Um, you know, maybe they're working with a coach and something really needs to be changed or someone again, picks up speed, uh, or loses speed. It all depends. Now speed is a big factor when it comes to fitting, but then there are other things like someone who used to hit down on the driver now hits up on their driver that those drivers are not going to fit the same. Um, and one of the other things as well is just on, if we're just going to talk drivers for a second, and again, we're going to get back to this analogy, which I promised you in just a moment, but adjustability very much makes a difference when it comes to every club in your bag. Now, for drivers, that can mean adjustable centers of gravity. That can mean adjustable hosels. For fairy woods, same thing. For hybrids, same thing as well. You don't see a lot of adjustable weight in those. And then you get to irons. Lie and loft are two of the most crucial factors when it comes to making sure that someone can hit their target. It doesn't just mean one club. Because if you get something off the rack or you buy something used and you're not really sure and you go through and you just get it double checked that one more time to make sure that it actually is built just for you or it's to the specs that you were fit to uh, when you get something from a custom fitter. Now, if you're getting something from them, you should pretty much see a spec sheet and there shouldn't be any issues. But from there, that means that you are ready to go and every club is going to be set for you. And same with wedges, lies and lofts and gapping and all these different things. They matter when it comes to maximizing performance. And again, we're talking about swing tweaks and all these different things, but there are different levels of golfer, right? Like I said earlier, you have people that are going to enjoy the game in a whole bunch of different ways. If it's just socially and they want to make sure that you have your golfing budget, whatever it happens to be, and this is one of those things where I'm not here to judge or say one is right or wrong, it doesn't matter. Because I I mean, I'm at the point where I like to think of myself as if I'm going to spend money on golf stuff, it's going to be on travel and playing the golf courses that I want to tra uh, play and um, play even if it means locally and just having like a rinky nick membership at a golf course that gives me access to a practice little practice facility and the ability to go and play nine holes later in the evening then that to me is the value that I see when it comes to my golf budget 
uh, and even with gear, I, I love shopping used stuff, even though I, you know, I have bags of new stuff and I like get to test new stuff all the time, but I still like going out and finding those deals, those fun little hidden gems, um, because you can do that too. And you can go out and find absolutely great value, which is something we're going to talk about again. I feel like I'm pushing everything away and I'm going to say, oh, I'm going to keep talking about it. I'm going to keep talking about it. I'm going to keep talking about it. But we're going to get to it in just a second. But back to that analogy. So think about it like this, okay? You're buying a suit. And this is the way that I've, I've used this analogy many times before, but to me, it is the most perfect example. And you can think, you can actually tailor this, no pun intended, talking about a suit, to a bunch of different things, whatever it happens to be, right? But you can walk into a store Know your general size. Say, you know, I'm a whatever it happens to be. I'm ter- I, I haven't bought a suit in a long time. So um, you go in there, you think you're whatever, 42 long, and then you get your pant waist size and they, they you know, they, they, um, they hem the pants, they check the sleeve length. It looks good. You're ready to go. You got a new suit. It's fantastic. Second option. And that's kind of like going off the rack and maybe getting a live loft adjustment. Or, you know, getting fit for a driver, again, off the rack. Uh, going through and getting the weights adjusted, making sure you have the right flex and getting the loft tweaked a little bit. So there you go. You're set, you're out the door, ready to go play. Next up, you have the, we'll call it the off the rack tailoring. And in this case, that could actually mean the driver being adjusted anyway. So you walk in and you have the option of a number of different suits. Uh, they're going to measure you up. They're going to pick through because they have a lot more options, kind of like more of a custom fitting aspect to it. They're going to hem the pants. They're going to change the waist. They might, you know, change the pant line a little bit. They're going to do all these little things to really figure out what's going to work for you. That is, as I said, you know, maybe you're going to go in and and do a, um, I don't want to say a lie loft fitting, but you're going to get some stuff tested. You're going to get some new grips on there. Um, Maybe you'll do a gapping. It's pretty good. You're probably going to be like almost, you're going to look great in that suit. It's going to work fantastic. It's on camera, no one's going to know that it was wherever you got it from. It's going to look great. Last but not least, you walk into a custom tailor shop bespoke suit and you get to pick the fabric, the liner, the initials, how you want the buttons to look. Every single little detail, nothing is overlooked, but that's going to cost you. Okay. And for some people, have it be suit buying people, Mr. Play suit buying people with golfer. Okay, just trying to think of that in your head. Um, are going to say, you know what? I don't really need that. The option before works really well. I've always done it this way. Um, I play pretty good golf. I don't really see myself going out of my way to, to try and do anything different. And I really like it. I know what I'm going to get with this. And for me, it works in my budget. And you know what? To be honest, that's where most golfers fit in. And you're going to get fantastic gear out of that. That's great. But when it comes to, you know, being able to go through and get the things that you really want and test the things and order the exotic fabrics and look at the cool, like the the golf shafts that have the newer technology that might offer a a benefit to you, then this is where that bespoke aspect of club fitting is going to work for that player. In a lot of cases, this is either very competitive or highly competitive players, or it's, you know, Let's be very clear here. It's like someone with more disposable income who values golf. And this is the thing when I talk about value, because this comes up in questions all the time. What's a better value? And I can't answer that question for you because I don't know 
what's in your wallet. That does, I'm not judging. Again, I'm not, this is not a judgment call. This is the ability to help based on you making the decision. So I'm helping you make the decision that's right for you. And for a lot of people, it's like, yeah, it's, you know what? That's what I want because that's what I can afford. I know that it's going to benefit me and I think it's really cool. And like to put this in perspective, um, when I got, uh, I got to go check out the new TSI Woods uh, at Titleist, the performance center in uh, just outside of Toronto because we were in Canada, you know, and didn't, didn't, didn't go to Oceanside and do any of that stuff. Um, but I got to go through the fitting experience. And I said, so how are you? And I, one of, while I was there, I got to hit something I'd never hit before, concept series. Those things are insanely good. They are extremely forgiving. They are fast. They launch the ball very high. And for a lot of players, uh, that's going to be a huge performance advantage. But they come with a price. You got to go custom fit a Titleist or you got to go see one of the fitting specialists that has the opportunity to use those. And you're going to pay for them because they are mightily expensive because of the processes that they use and the materials that they use. And they don't make a lot of them because it's really the envelope pushing side of the equipment equation. And it's like a supercar, right? Or it's like a very high-end custom vehicle. And I ask them because, you know, I, people are, I get comments and people say, that's eh, expensive. It's dumb. It doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, Hey guys, how's it working for you? He's like, oh, we're, we're booked up for fittings until we like, you know, let's say for a couple of weeks, because as soon as they come out, a lot of people are coming in and they see the value in it because that's where it comes down to, does it work for me? And those people are looking for the absolute advantage. And when we talk about the different ends of that spectrum of golfers, gaining speed, losing speed for some players who may be losing speed and want to get that, um, actually great, great version of you. Uh, Ian Fraser once said this, uh, in a, we were talking about clubbing. He said, people get their, their, um, they reduce their golfing age, you know, and it means like they can hit it further. They hit it higher than they did before. And I always thought that was a great term to use because you want to be able to perform at a certain level all the time. And at a certain point, it can become more difficult. Age is often a factor when it comes to that. And certain players are going to say, I want to be able to get that advantage back with equipment using technology. And in some cases, a lot of people are going to spend to get that because that's where the technology is in a lot of cases. But as far as even player's irons and those kind of like even um, maximum game improvement, it doesn't mean you have to spend that to get a huge advantage, but it's there. And that's when we talk about value and we talk about what custom club fitting is or is it worth it? Well, first of all, that's always going to be up to you because it has to do with worth and value. But it 100% works. It 100% offers an advantage and it can make someone a better golfer doesn't mean they're going to pull the right club it doesn't mean that their chipping technique gets better but it means that what they have is going to work for them better for what they bring to the table just like i am not what i would call an abercrombie model um but is that a, is that a is that a dated reference god i, I hope not either way uh, maybe maybe that dates me either way again i'm not really sure but um what I can do is I can go to a place and get custom fit for a suit. And sure, I'm not going to walk around without a shirt on with the, with the suit top on and say like, yeah, look at me now. But dressed up in the full suit, I'm going to look pretty good because it's fit for me. And that's kind of what you get when you get a full set of fitted golf clubs. You're going to get something that's really going to work for you. You're going to help you bring what, help you with what you bring to the table. And at the end of the day, it's also long-term going to help you play better. So, wow, that was a big, long way of saying, yes, custom fitting is important. Yes, it works. But again, you have to find the type of custom fitting that works for you. Now, to get to the question part of the show, uh, because I do get, again, 
talking about Instagram and, and going through like the question and answer period. Remember, you can follow along RDS Brath on Twitter and Instagram and follow the show at OnSpecWRX. One of the questions I also get all the time, which is obviously impossible to answer, is which one is better? And someone will show, throw out uh, driver shafts or irons or new driver heads or fairy woods or whatever it happens to be. They're just picking stuff, right? What grips are better? And the answer is, I don't know. It comes down to what works best for you and fitting parameters and working with a fitter. And I know that can be tougher for a lot of people. But if you just have access to a launch monitor and then can do some little bit of research when it comes to understanding uh, you know, what driver heads work better for someone who may hit down on it or create a little bit extra spin, or looking at something like the ping fitting chart, talking about um, angle of attack and what's going to work to the true optimization of that player. That's where it also becomes very important to you know take a little bit of time to be able to understand what you are bringing to the table as far as creating, because then you can figure out or at least um, really narrow it down to what is going to work best because there is no best and this comes to something that i also wanted to talk about which i think is very important because it again it's a topic that comes up all the time and it is what do oems do different from either smaller companies or people that are coming into the game because there is a lot of price variance from brand new product and also either used product or either product that's a little bit older and then you can go back at this point five 10, 10 years, and what is the real advantage? And what it comes down to is consistency. And with the new equipment, a lot of times it is the same thing as talking about the competitive level of the spectrum. I want whatever I can get. And for those players, there is going to be an advantage of more ball speed, more consistency, the ability to hit shots that they might not be able to have hit before. And that comes down to fitting and also adjustability because uh, ping for a long time didn't do movable weights and then when it was the guess the 410 came out and they said look we have like more than 20 yards of side to side which we could kind of do before with hot melt but we're bringing that to consumers because a lot of consumers don't have the opportunity to go to a fitting a van and you know go through and get hot melt in their driver so we want to be able to offer that to the consumer and this is our way of doing it and it's very creative and you know they weren't the first to do movable weight but it's the way of thinking about how that can give someone an advantage which they didn't have before in the equipment that they had and so when it comes to better you can look at a, a driver that gets thrown at all the time or at least fairly regularly is like a tailor-made r580 xd and if we're because we're nerds and we're talking golf gear tp so you have this tour shoe driver head that was very fast or you have a, something like a super quad off the middle, that driver is very fast. It's pretty much to the limit, as they say, right? That That's what it was designed to do. In fact, there are probably drivers from back then that you could find that would be over the limit now because they've hit enough golf balls. They've kind of slowly you know, worked the face in, literally, and gone to the point where they become faster. But the difference is, and I think this is really cool, um, not that I'm telling you to go out and cut drivers in half or you know break a driver that's new, but what you will see when you pull a driver like that apart versus a new one is how clean everything is. And I think uh, the limited Cobra that had the big space port or whatever they called it on the bottom of it, you pull that open, you look inside, there's not a loose weld anywhere. Every single part of that driver is maximized. You open up an old TaylorMade, old Ping, old Callaway, it doesn't matter. I'm not picking on any OEM here. You open those up, you'll see, you'll see like weld beating and extra mass and, and those kind of things and you know what it was because of the manufacturing processes that 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 was the best that they could do and it was very good at the time but 
they've gotten a lot better. And when we talk about five grams, six grams, seven grams here and there in a club head, it can really make a difference when you're looking at maximizing performance end over end or year over year over year and getting the most out of it. Um, you know, I still use, um, what is it? Uh, an iPhone eight, right? There's new ones out there. Trust me. I'm eyeing one up right now. Um, but it still works really, really well. It has all the features that I want in it. It makes the calls. It does the text. It does shoot good video. Um, all those things. But of course the new one is better. And, but you know, I didn't upgrade to the next one right away and I didn't upgrade to the next one right away. I've kind of waited because I'm at the point now where I would see a demonstrable benefit to getting something new. And it's the same with golf equipment because if you got fit last year for a driver and you go to get fit again, you're like, well, a new driver's going to cost me, let's say seven or $600. And I'm gaining four yards. And my dispersion is relatively the same because, um, I got fit for the last one. I got fit for this one. My dispersion, uh, standard deviation is relatively the same, um, so do I really need to upgrade? Totally up to you. Again, is it better? You've proven that it's longer, right? You've proven that the consistency is just as good with your old one. Uh, but is the four yards worth $600? Again, that's a value play up to you. But when it comes to something like irons, a lot of times people don't need to upgrade those as often because again, if we're talking about the speed component, we're talking about the going up or down in speed, or the massive change of dynamics, then, you know, lie loss are going to involve some tweaking or um, some advantage with the sole or those kind of things. Um, but over year over year, are you going to see that if you were fit for the old set? I don't believe so. Maybe you're going to get something that looks better for your own eye or maybe offer some more consistency, but generally speaking, you're not going to get that. And this comes down to, you know, when I say like year over year, talking about club components and those kind of things, the reason those companies succeed on tour and the reason those companies succeed in the consumer market is not just marketing. And yes, a lot of people are going to sit there and go marketing. Um, but it's because of their ability to, they, they sell a lot of golf clubs, which means they can invest in the technology to continue to produce something that is better than what they did before. Because just like that phone that I mentioned earlier, if someone comes out with something that's not as good, people will know. People will look at it and say it's, or they'll go get fit and they'll say it's not better. They have to justify it or they are going to get skewered. And so um, when it comes to talking about, which I think, well, even a number of years ago, you could say it's good. It's maybe more forgiving, but is it really better overall? In some cases, maybe the answer is no, but it all depends on the player. Um, but there are advantages to that, right? And you know, there are great entry points for smaller companies. The Metalwood, the Metalwood area is very, very difficult because of the amount that goes into it. And there is, from the marketing side of things, there is a, a big uh, disadvantage that smaller companies have. But again, the amount, the way that they design product and the way that they have opportunity to access the, the, the true, the manufacturers overseas, that engineer, and I, they, I mean, they give the specs to them and they are involved in that process. But you know, their ability to work with them closely and be able to create product is a lot easier for them because they have those relationships, they, they're established, and they have the the ability to invest in it versus a smaller company. But there are opportunities. And we've started to see this, right? We've seen it from, for example, Kirkland, right? Now, we're not, we're not going to really get to the golf ball. I don't want to talk too much about golf balls, but let's talk about the putter, right? They went to a manufacturer, they helped design options. They talked about what they wanted. They talked about price point. They talked about getting a certain grip. They talked about getting a certain look. And they designed with the manufacturer 
people at Costco to create a putter. They created it. No one else. They didn't go to, I know uh, another person on YouTube who may or may not be very popular. He's very popular. Um, was like, oh, is it from, you know, Odyssey? Or is it, did they help do this? It's no. There are consistencies from product to product. If you look across the board, right? Um, but you're going to, again, you're going to see that if you pay attention. But as far as who actually did it, no, they created the product. They worked with engineers and then they went to someone who manufactured it. And there's a number of companies overseas that manufacture product. And there are just like there are a number of companies, especially when we're talking putters in North America that produce them or mill them or cast them or all those kind of things to go through the process of actually designing a unique product and bringing it to market. Does it resemble other things? Yes, but so do a lot of other things, a lot of other clubs in general. Um, Next up, we have wedges right? You were taught. Now there are companies that are pushing the limits of wedge technology. You've got Vokey with the SMA. You've got Cleveland with the RTX, which looks sick by the way, and, and Zipcore. And you have the Mizuno with the ES and you have TaylorMade with the big t- and the uh, MG2 and um, the, and all these different ways of creating product that is, um, even if you look at the Jaws wedges, right? The ability they have to change tooling over and over and over again to get those grooves as sharp, and that comes with a cost, right? And that gets transferred to the consumer based on you know mass volume, all these other kind of factors that go into producing product. But if you want to produce a wedge that has a steel shaft and a rubber grip, and has zero options as far as bounce or grind, but have something that is I would say generic or more standard to a wider demographic of the golfing population, and you you um, you mill the grooves and you make them conforming and you send them to the RNA and USGA and you go through that whole process and you're not doing anything beyond those kind of what I would call standard procedures as far as constructing wedges, then boom, you can create a product that doesn't cost as much as other guys because they're pushing the envelope as far as technology and they're looking at something and going, this is what we want, this is what we can get, and there you have a product. And they're both great for different golfers. And I think if there's one theme to the show, which I really wasn't thinking about at the top of it, top of this because it wasn't the goal, but... It's okay to use the product that works for you based on price and what you're looking to get out of it, right? Because again, if you're looking for enjoyment, you're looking for a new set of wedges and you're not really someone who's super concerned about bounce and grind and all those things, Kirkland wedges are great value. They're one of the best values in wedges on the market for new product. You're taken to a club builder, you get the grips you want on them maybe, you get them checked for the lion loft, maybe you get the lies tweaked a little bit, boom, you got a great new set of wedges. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying that when it comes to technology, you have other companies that are going to do something a lot different and they're offering a advantage, but that advantage is going to cost you. Uh, Another fun little thing that I, again, I did this um, actually the other day on Instagram. I thought it'd be fun because, you know, everyone says when they look at the back of a golf club, oh, it's ugly, look at the badging, or um, I think it looks silly, or I don't like the color, or whatever it happens to be. And then there's a lot of golfers where you just show them the top line of a golf club in the address position, in the playing position, and they look down and go, that club looks amazing. And for fun, and I've done this before, where I find a club that I think looks fantastic in the address position, and I think it would appeal to a lot of golfers that say things like, I don't want a lot of offset. I want a shorter blade length. I want it to look nice and square. I want it to look compact. I want it to have all these different things. I want it to have this good transition from the top line to the hosel. I want it to look clean. And if you just set a golf club down and look at it, and and I had, 
there was a lot of people. And basically, I posted a picture from a dress of a golf club. And I said, you won't guess what it is. And I had people guess every OEM. I had people guess Japanese stuff. And after about 45 minutes, someone guessed it. It was a new level. Uh, what's the product? It's uh, the PF1. So they have a PF1, PF2. I think there's a three. It's either done or it's on the way. or something. It's like a hall. They get progressively larger in, in the clubs. And the blade is, um, it has a, I would say, a, a meatier but thin top line. Really square. Not a lot of offset. Great looking iron. And no one guessed it for a very long period of time. And it was like, wow, that's I, I would never have guessed it. Yeah, because you didn't look at it in the first place, right? And it's where you can look at brands and look at wedges and look at opportunity in the market for clubs that you might not consider. It Because when it comes to custom club fitting or things that are going to look good to you, it's important to keep a very open mind. I have purchased clubs in the past where I've looked at the backs of them and this is, I'm talking used stuff here. So there's a, there's a set, um, if you can find them, they're like the 588 Cleveland TA blades. And uh, I've, I think I've owned two sets of them now. And the first time I bought the set, I played them a couple times and I was like, I don't like the offset in the short iron. There is a lot of offset. Uh, it doesn't really work for me. I think they look great from the back. I think they're amazing looking blade, but they're just not for me. So I sold them. And for some reason between years ago doing that and then buying them again, I forgot about the offset. And so I made that mistake. They showed up. Uh, I was like, man, these are, these are in great shape. They look good. Set them down. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot offset. And so, you know, it was one of those where I'm like, okay, well, you know what? It is what it is. You made the mistake. It's not a big deal. Let's go through and let's, you know, we'll clean them up and we'll get rid of them. Not a huge deal at all. And that was just one of those things where, uh, you know, you make the mistake of buying something because of the way it looks rather like from the back or from, you know, just because of the way it looks on a shelf versus how it looks at a dress. And I can enjoy something in one way and then go, oh, it doesn't really look very good. And, you know, it's just one of those things where you can get, uh, in case of the novel, you get a lot of club for not a lot of money and they're, they're well-made golf clubs they, and they, they take pride in their building process. Um, but that's one of those, again, it's one of the things where you got to go in with the open mind when it comes to club fitting and comes to, to trying equipment because there are advantages from other brands that you might not consider. And there's other direct to consumer brands. You've got sub 70, you've got Ben Hogan and, there's a Haywood, right? There's other options out there when people are talking about clubs, but you have to know where to look. And I think that for the consumer is why people generally go towards, you know, because of custom fitting options, because of availability, that's another thing as well. Um, but overall, the big, cons- you know, is the ability to try. And I think someone said a long time ago, or at least a few years ago now, is the fact that, you know, we continue to buy more and more stuff online direct from the people who are making it. And, before we didn't get that in golf. We used to have to go, you go to a store, you go to a big box store, you go outside, you hit it. But thanks to technology and different camera angles and how you can 3D render a golf club and look down on it and being able to go through fitting tools online and get very close to what you're looking at or maybe you'll find the absolute perfect fit is that you can get that without ever you know, looking at a product, especially if you are someone who is uh, very aware of your equipment and knows your specs and knows what you like, then you can dial it in a lot easier when it comes to picking up those golf clubs, especially if you're very particular about even something like a, like a, a very um, specific look. Um, now we're going to talk club fitting one more time before we go into a couple more things about uh, question and answer before the end of the show. But before we do, the one thing I want to mention, speaking of used golf clubs earlier, and, uh, you know, looks, and that is the fact that uh, check out 
golfavenue.ca or golfdirects.com slash golfavenue because if you go through us, not only do you get an additional value on your trade-ins, but you also get additional value in your buying golf clubs. And I know heading into the holidays, they've got a lot of promos going on on their website as well, beyond the stuff that we're offering too. And one of the things that I love, and I've mentioned it many, many times before, is the fact that when you are buying from Golf Avenue, you get to see the pictures of the clubs you're buying. That's a big sticking point for me. Someone who likes to buy and likes to look for like really crazy stuff online, uh, you know, sometimes you go other places and you don't get pictures. You get representational images. I hate that. It's so annoying because especially when it comes to have it be like basically any golf club, right? How much face wear does it have? How many nicks does it have? Um, I'm rather particular and I won't buy anything with a, a scratched up top unless I plan on just messing it around or, you know, just using the shaft in it. So with that in mind, be sure to check out golfavenue.ca and for the extra discount and buyback on your golf clubs, it's golfwrx.com slash golfavenue. All right, so now we're going to finish off the show or the rest of the show with some more questions from the question and answer earlier this week, which I love doing. And remember, follow along, RDS Brath on Instagram, where I do the questions. Also, follow along, same guy, same person, same handle on Twitter, and you can follow the show at OnSpecWRX. Um, so one of the questions I get a lot of times, and I think a lot of club fitters get and a lot of golfers uh, have, is I need a hybrid that doesn't hook as much. Or I want a hybrid, I want something that's more forgiving, but I don't want it to be as draw bias. Hybrids, generally speaking, and I use that term because, you know, there are a lot of options out there, are slightly more draw bias. Um, there are ones that are a little bit flatter, and this is where getting a hybrid that might have an adjustable hosel, which allows you to make it flatter. Uh, Ping is a, is a great one that comes to mind, Titleist as well, that gives you that option of going much flatter in the hybrid. Uh, now, there are other options when it comes to weighting. You can get really specific as far as hot melt. Uh, also, using heavier golf shafts. That's the other thing, too. A lot of people will go from something like a, say it's a 110 gram or 115 gram shaft in your irons, and the next hybrid you go is like 60 grams or 70 grams off the rack. That's probably not going to work very well for you, especially if you're used to that extra weight and if it transitions well into your longer clubs, which is, we'll go into the next question after this. So it's important to pay very close attention to shaft weight as well as the lie angle of the club and uh, the ability to possibly control center of gravity. Uh, the other thing too is length because people are trying to sometimes pick up speed with their hybrids and they oftentimes come with these lighter shafts. They play uh, um, definitely longer than your standard iron that it is technically replacing. So because of that, um, if you go shorter, you effectively make the golf club play flatter. And that's another thing that is very important, which can help with initial launch direction, which can help make a golf club less draw bias. So those are the things. Um, and yeah, so if I'm going to name a couple hybrids, I, I think I already named Titleist, uh, Ping, uh, PXG is another one because you have the adjustability on the bottom. Uh, plus you have that adjustable hosel. That's a great hybrid for people who don't want to hook a hybrid. Um, and then, uh, I mean, if you're looking for old stuff, Adams, big fan of the Adams stuff, which I think if you follow me anywhere, you'll know that that's a, that's a pretty common answer if someone's looking for the really old, good hybrid stuff. Um, now, talking about shaft weight, and this is another thing. Um, people asked, why does the shaft weights go progressively heavier from the top of the set to the bottom of the set? Now, this has to do with weight progression because of the length of the golf clubs, and also for a bit of 
uh, general feel, right? So if you have a dry replay, 60 gram shaft, it's a 45 inches, and everything kind of balances out to that point. Well, the next club, it, most of the time is gonna go 10 grams heavier. And three and five wood, most of the time stay the same, but you can go to 10 grams heavier again. And that's the normal progression until you get to your irons, which are what are considered constant. A lot of times if they're taper tip, they have constant weight shafts, which means from your three iron to the pitching wedge, the shafts all weigh relatively the same mass. And that is in a constant weight. There are something called ascending weights. So you have AMTs, which are lighter in the longer stuff, heavier in the other stuff, in the shorter stuff. And then you also have uh, parallel shafts, which by definition get technically a little bit lighter as you get to the other end of the set. Uh, so those are the three variations but it all comes down to balancing it out. So if you have a constant weight set of iron shafts, the grips all weigh the same, the shafts technically all weigh pretty much the same, and the head weight is the big determining factor across the board. And if you add in that with the little bit of extra shaft length that was taken off each uh, set, you have anywhere from seven to 10, 11 grams uh, between clubs either way. And you kind of get that with a little bit more on the higher end, and then you get it a little bit less in the lower end of the set because it's the ability to balance out that reduced length with a little extra weight to make clubs hopefully feel the same. And that's why you get that. Um, the only other one or example that you would see that wouldn't be like that is uh, something Ping promotes. And I know Marty Jertson has talked about this with his own lob wedge. He's been on some of our old shows before. Uh, I think Bubba Watson is someone who they've, they've talked about. For a lob wedge, you're trying to create a lot of speed around the greens, especially if it is used as, a, as more of a get-out-of-jail card if you know what I mean, you know, those, those really short-sided bunkers, and you need to create extra speed. They have actually found that if you reduce the weight of their wedges, and you see this in the, the wedge shafts that they offer stock, as well as the head weights in those longest, or the, sorry, highest lofted wedges, that they go a little bit lighter. So you can create that extra speed down at the bottom uh, easier on a shorter swing to get the golf ball up and spinning. So that is just one thing to consider and one thing to experiment with if you are looking at wedges. Because I, I remember listening to Marty talk about it and I thought it was really, really cool. Um, I don't really use my lob wedge too much like that. It's, it's more of a club that I, I try to be very versatile with. Uh, I also, the highest lofted wedge I carry is a 58 anyways. So uh, I generally have it matching or I'll go maybe a little bit lighter, but not, uh, they have wedges that they'll do even like um, D0 with a, 10 gram lighter shaft in it. So there's there's other ways to go about that process. But again, it always comes down to the proper fit. Um, launch monitors. Uh, the question that came up was, do you need a launch monitor for a fitting? <sighs> yes, uh, 100%. If you want to know all of the information that you can possibly gain from a fitting, you need a launch monitor. Uh, have it be any number of things that can offer you information. Um, the stuff like GC Quad for inside is by far the best option because it takes the photo with a club face. Uh, it gives you ball like where their strike location is, which is vital when it comes to looking at dialing absolutely everything in you possibly can. And then um, getting all your spin and all that other information. And you get that with other um, ones too, but they don't get the photo, right? So there's other ways to look at strike location, which is pretty easy, um, but it doesn't give you the same accuracy as obviously the photo is going to give you with the GC quad. Um, and that's why the, the GC2 had the HMT, which so it gave you that option. So you had to buy the second thing to do the pictures and all that stuff. But obviously the quad is just one big thing. And it's actually very small, um, but it's a very useful tool. Um, when it comes to radar, which is something that I use, 
You can still use it inside. You can still get strike location. Um, but uh, I always find that for inside, I think I think they're both really, really good. Uh, I love TrackMan inside, uh, especially for practice. Um, but it's just one of those things where they both do really, they, they technically do the same thing. They do it in a different way. But to go through that process, what I mean, and this really comes down to drivers. Um, you can use it for irons and you should use it for irons. But someone was talking about uh, the Mizuno shaft optimizing. They said, does it work? Can I kind of translate that to a driver? I'm like, no, because your iron swing is not even close to your driver swing. You're hitting down with your irons. Um, maybe you are maybe more aggressive with your driver. You're hitting up on it. So that's when it comes to optimizing every single club, have it be your driver, your three, with your five wood. You need to go through those fittings to find how they gap in your bag and how they work for you. You can't just say, well, the, the 10 and a half degree driver works in stiff flex. I'll go 10 grams heavier with the 15 degree. Um, that'll be fine. Same flex. Don't do it. You can, of course you can, but if you're looking to maximize performance, that's not the way to do it. And you need a launch monitor. You need to go through the gapping process because you only got 14 tools in your bag, 13 if you only think of the ones that you're full swinging. You want those to all have a certain job that they're going to do. And I think that's really important. And that's why launch monitors are so important. Um, the one thing though too, and I think this is also uh, important, and this is kind of one of the last fitting questions of the whole bit before I, I kind of go on my last little, I don't want to call it a rant, I'll call it a story time, um, is that, uh, what am I saying? What am I getting at here? I had it there. There it is. Okay, here we go. See, I do have notes. I just, they're kind of sitting around. Uh, there is no magic bullet when it comes to fitting. See, it got quiet. We kind of tuned it down there. Um, bring in, come into the trust circle here. Um, there is no magic bullet when it comes to club fitting. It's not going to stop you from doing anything. Um, I get it a lot. And I think it's important to mention this. Because if you are someone who has a swing that is naturally going to draw the golf ball, you are still potentially going to miss hooking the golf ball. But by going through a proper fitting and going through the process, you can help reduce that miss. And this is important for understanding because when you go on a launch monitor, you get that information about what's going on in your swing. And I'm not talking about going to a, going to a fitting and getting a lesson because in some cases I've seen fitters recommend players, you know, listen, this is what we're looking at here. This is what we can offer you. And this is how you can tell really good, honest fitters that are looking to build a relationship with you, the customer, versus someone who's just trying to sell you something. And in some cases, if you go in there, you say, you're not going to go get lessons. You say, this is my swing. I just want the best option. Then they're going to sell you something. And that's not on them. That's on you. And that's, again, that's totally your option to do that. That's your choice. But as far as being able to understand what's going on, I look at myself because I've seen this a number of times. When I grew, when I was a younger person playing golf, I used to hit, a, I worked um, very hard to hit a draw, to hit it further. But as equipment changed, because I grew up, you know, kind of introduction to the Pro V1 and that in multi-layer golf balls and drivers got a lot bigger and all of a sudden high launch, low spin with a driver became a thing. You could hit it, hit up on it and play it more of a fade and it would go almost the same distance. And it was the same with irons and you could hit it higher. And I had to learn how to do that. I'm not saying I had to go through the Tiger Woods-esque tra uh, transition, not at all. Um, but when I still see, and I, I work very hard to be able to hit a fade, but sometimes I can get a little squirrely when it comes to that. And that has to do with a face to path relationship. And, um, to say it lightly, there are times when my swing can go very, uh, out to in. 
and I'm able to control the face to path relationship, but I can't really get spin down too, too much. Um, I mean, I can control it and get it into very, very good numbers, uh, but I can maximize it better by getting closer to a zero path. I still want to create, to me, a bit of a fade bias in my own golf swing and, you know, trying to hit a draw when I have to. Um, that's a lot of details on my own golf swing. But if someone comes in and they're way across the golf ball, to be able to help them do that, you can you can do it with equipment, but you're only going to get so far. And that's where a lesson or working with a coach and improving your actual golf swing is going to give you and deliver better results. There is no bullet. There is no, uh, if you're someone who's very steep with irons and you chunk golf clubs a lot, yes, you can get a wider sole. Yes, you can get something that has more bounce. But at the certain point, too steep is too steep. And you can only go so far as, as far as optimization. And that's the thing where you can, you can find that right optimization for you. But by some small swing changes and dynamic changes of your golf swing, you will see even better results. And that is where when people talk about adjusting spin or adjusting misses with a driver, the, let's let's rank them, and this is this will be different depending on certain players. But let's the why a draw why certain shots do certain things. Player dynamic. We're talking spin on a driver, for example. The way a player delivers the golf club, which includes speed and the amount of loft, either having hit up or down, face contact point, is the other thing, and then the up and down and and golf ball and other things like that. But face contact point, and speed. And then the dynamics of either up or down or across it or either draw like draw across or fade across are what is going to create the what's going to make that golf ball do certain things. And you can adjust those and help fine tune them with equipment, but you can only get so far. And I just want to make sure that I say that because people go into fittings and sometimes like I only got I only saw this much improvement. I'm like, well, did your consistency get better? You, you picked up distance, which was the goal. Um, your, your, your standard deviation as far as misses and, um, overall dispersion got a lot better and you don't miss it, uh, left as often. So technically you got everything you wanted out of it, but what were we, what were you hoping? And then you hear someone say like what their hopes and dreams were and you realize, well, it's not possible with what you're bringing to the table right now. We can optimize that. And it kind of comes down to that suit, right? Um, I, this is why, that's why I love this analogy is, you know, I look the way I do. I don't look like an Abercrombie model. If I went to the gym a lot, maybe I could and change my diet slightly as well. Uh, then, you know, I might be able to fit into that like super skinny looking suit, but I can still wear a skinny looking suit by getting fitted properly. Uh, but I could get a, you know, to me, what I would find, you know, that's what I really like to look like in that suit. But, you know, I take some extra effort and maybe going to the gym and a diet change. But that's, you know, that, that's kind of about your golf swing right? You know, you can do the Bryson, go to the gym and change your golf swing. And yeah, you know, you're going to need some different golf clubs, but we're going to fit what's going to work just for you. And I think that's really important. I hope I explained that well without, um, I, I don't want to sound mean in any way, because I'm just trying to be honest. I'm trying to give people information and trying to help people make better decisions. Um, now this is, this is a fun question. So I'm going to end the show with this. It's not really golf related, but I think it's something that I think is, uh, important. Or, you know, gonna again, bring you into that circle, introduce you a little bit more about me. And you've heard me talk for, I guess we're getting close to two years now I've had the show, um, which is very exciting. I, I don't know what number episode this is. Uh, I would have to check. 
I don't really pay attention. I guess I could count weeks and do that kind of thing, but I feel like I might have missed a couple. But anyways, I digress. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, someone asked, what would you do if you weren't working in golf? And I don't know. Um, I've worked other jobs. So let's, let's do the brief employment history here. Um, very, very quickly. Um, I worked at a golf course, which I did for a very long time. Uh, just back shop stuff, you know, gripping clubs. And then, um, when I was uh, 16, got a lie loft machine, kind of opened my own little shop, which I just did stuff for like golf courses and a few friends and family. Like there wasn't a big thing. Um, then because of that and that experience, I ended up going to, and something that I wanted to do was go to uh, learn more about club building. Still a teenager at this point, went to Austin, Texas, went to Goldsmith, went their club building program, was there for two, two weeks. I think it would, no, I did the one week one. And then a year later I did uh, one week and one week. So I did the programs back to back, which is really cool. Um, which sucked at the time because as anyone is unaware, or maybe you do know, uh, the drinking age in Canada is 19 and I was 19 when I went and, uh, 21 in Texas. So it was like, oh, this sucks. Now I'm here for two weeks. Anyways, um, but my parents were there. And so like, let's just say it wasn't a huge issue. But nonetheless, I digress again. So, um, I was there, came back, went to college, went to, uh, went, so yeah, I went to college, uh, went and joined and worked at a big box store. So my experience in golf and club building allowed me to work in the shop, which they always need to people who, you know, didn't ruin golf clubs. Cause that's something that I think people who, as the expansion of big box happened in, in golf retail, uh, there were people that maybe weren't that experienced doing club work, which wasn't very good for anybody. Didn't look good on anyone. And for a long period of time, it was a huge eyesore on the industry. And I don't think it really exists too much anymore. But anyways, I was able to bring my experience there. And then from there, over a period of time, I, um, I did that and then went to school, did some other, like kind of like another little side job with like some construction stuff because of winter, you know, it was not as busy. Uh, and then I got a job at Titleist. So I worked for Titleist two years in a row, um, in the summer. Uh, did something else in the winter, worked, uh, construction, uh, actually installed with, uh, through a company, um, what are they called? Pneumatic tube system, you know, things in hospitals <laughs> did those. That was really cool. Learned a lot, a lot of like engineering stuff. Uh, it's not really technically my background, but I, I learned a lot on the job and I thought it was really neat. Um, then from there, um, ended up getting really lucky and I worked at a custom club fitting studio in Toronto. I worked there. Um, I was their first actual like employee. That wasn't someone who was started there. And, uh, through that, I, uh, was there for, I think it was four years, uh, managed the build shop, managed the custom facility. Uh, someone else did all the ordering and stuff. I just kind of, anything that was in the shop, as far as orders and building and supervising other builders, I did all of that, uh, which was a lot of fun, uh, which was very, very cool. And from there, um, at that point I got a little bit burnt out on golf. Um, it was a long drive to go to where I was, uh, where I was and where I lived. And I really loved it. It was something where if anyone's ever talked to me and obviously I talk club building all the time. Um, it's something like you, I get the headphones on or I get the music pumping and I got a whole bench full of golf clubs in front of me and I'll just fire through them. It's just like my little happy place. Um, and it was just something where like, you know what? Um, I want to try something a little different. I, I really enjoy and enjoyed still do uh, craft beer. And a new brewery opened up really close to where I lived. And so while I was still doing club work, I started working at the brewery. Just on weekends, giving tours, learning about it. And through that process, and this is where for me, again, this is like way off topic. So if you're still listening, thank you very much. Um, for me, I've always been about learning more. It's just this thing that kind of drives me. And so when it comes to the beer, what I started doing was learning more about it. 
So uh, I started taking classes, learning about not just making it, which I didn't, it's not that making it is not something that I really ever want to do, but being able to understand the history and styles and tasting. So anyways, over the course of a couple of years while doing the other things and working at the brewery on the weekend, uh, I became a beer sommelier. That is a thing to the Prudhomme program here. Uh, Cicerone is what it's known in the United States. There are separate programs, but they are they, they run parallel to each other, just different names because of uh, USA versus Canada, but the programs are in both countries. Um, so that's there you go. There's a fun, interesting trivia fact about me. Uh, so I did that, and then um, I ended up deciding to work at the brewery full-time. I just got, I got, I was no golf. There was no golf involved in my life as far as working. I worked at the brewery. I did tours. As you can tell, talking is not something that I have difficulty with. I enjoy standing in front of crowds. And to get back to the original question, that is something where I think I would do regardless. And I think it's a job, not necessarily a job, but it's a part of a job that I enjoy doing. And that is presenting, talking to people, educating, not just learning myself, but being able to pass on knowledge is something that I've always truly enjoyed. I love talking to people. I love interacting with people. I love being able to uh, give someone something they didn't have before and have them really enjoy it. And for me, that is uh, knowledge. And so uh, through beer, I was able to do that. Through tours, talking to folks, and it was a blast. I love being able to stand in front of people and give them information and tell them a story. And through the brewery, because it was a craft brewery and it was growing very quickly, the... um, ended up being able to transition into a sales job. So I managed a sales territory for just over a year. Did the other thing for over just a year, then did the sales uh, territory for just over a year. And while I was doing that, uh, but before I got to the sales territory job, I also worked at a nonprofit that helped people with disabilities find employment, which I loved. I did that for eight months. It was a total, um, I don't want to say blast. Blast doesn't really like kind of sum it up. It was a huge learning experience for myself. Um, being able to, and I, I worked communications. I didn't, it's like, um, I worked, I didn't work directly with clients all the time. Uh, but it was something that I really enjoyed because it was something that I wanted to do that was very different. And for me, we, I think we went a long way. We were able to get a lot of exposure when I was there. And it was something that I loved doing because I got to talk to people. I got to learn and listen to people's stories and helping people. I know that sounds cheesy, um, but it really was something that I absolutely loved doing because, It was just, you knew at the end of the day, you're going home and you're helping people. Um, And while I was also doing that, so there was three jobs at one time, um, I was working as a tech rep for Mizuno in the summer. This was just like summertime stuff. So I did like 28 demo days, or it was probably maybe 40, kind of interweaved in there. So let me tell you, that was one heck of a summer schedule of one year. Um, But it was a lot of fun. And um, again, every single one of those jobs involves working with people, talking to people, reaching out to people, and educating and uh, I don't want to say promoting because there's promotion involved, but also uh, being advocates for people as well. And that's something that I always really loved doing. And, you know, through the feature writer program at Golf WRX and after the sales thing, I was starting to get more into club building. I was kind of like tinkering again and, and working in my shop and doing these little silly videos. They're not silly. They're educational videos, but they're videos there. And they, if you look back at them, they're not very good, but they're there. And they, they, they prove the point that you can do a lot in a basement job. Um, and from there, Golf Tube needed someone or wanted somebody else who had experience being able to talk about golf equipment with a, techno- like a, technology, a technology, technology 
background as far as clubs go. And also being able to communicate. Because there are a lot of people that know the information, being able to communicate it can sometimes be more difficult. Um, my side and background is in communication, but also in golf tech and fitting and building, which is what I have a lot of experience in. And that is why I'm here. And that is why I get to sit in front of this microphone once a week and talk to people, you people out there, um, whoever you are. Uh, if you want to give feedback, listen to the show. Um, remember, RDS Brath on Instagram, Twitter, and on spec WRX. Use all the channels, reach out, uh, comment, um, ask questions. And uh, that's why I'm here, is to help educate golfers, um, share stories from companies and people and just golf in general. I think it's sometimes forgotten that, you know, there is a world beyond just golf equipment every single day. Um, there's a lot of good that it does for people as far as, uh, especially this year, being outside, mental health, socializing. And uh, I think just remember, it is, there's a lot going on. And I think it's important to appreciate the things that we have. And golf is one of the things that I get to have and I really appreciate. I appreciate being involved and I appreciate you listening to the show this week. And that is my time. So again, if you have any feedback, use the channels available to you. I mentioned them lots. Uh, if you're curious, I'm going to give you my email. If you've gotten to this point in the show and you want to ask a question, or you want to provide a comment, it's ryan.brath at golfwrx.com. There it is. Uh, if you've got a hot tip on gear or anything, you got a question, reach out. I'll do my best to answer as quickly as possible. Um, I'm going to find out very soon if that was a good idea or, or not. Uh, but, again, I appreciate everyone that listens to the show. Uh, I know the last part there was very tangential to what I normally talk about. But because people have asked, people asked how I got here, um, it's tireless dedication to learning and immersing myself in golf and being able to pass that on. And that's why I'm here, and that's why I'm going to continue to be here. So I hope you enjoyed the show this week. As always, thank you for listening, and hopefully you get out there and play some golf. Cheers. (laughs)